Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. What is it that allows you to treat patients on a daily basis? A caring personality? Medical expertise? As a lawyer, I will tell you it is your medical license. Much like their friends of the state bar, physicians enjoy a professional monopoly. In recent years, that monopoly has come under some degree of attack. States have decided what physicians may and may not ask patients, what procedures may no longer be performed, and what medications may be prescribed for COVID-19. Medical expertise of physicians is being challenged in new and dangerous ways. Our friends at the American Board of Internal Medicine are concerned. You should be too. This is an important conversation every physician leader should listen to. Next on Sound Practice. My guest today is Richard Barron. Dr. Barron is President and Chief Executive Officer of the American Board of Internal Medicine and its foundation. He is an undisputed physician leader, and I am extraordinarily glad to speak with Dr. Barron today. Rich Barron, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you very much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure's all mine. Can you please tell me about the American Board of Internal Medicine? What is its mission and history of the organization? Absolutely. And it's a great place to start because it's very relevant to what we're talking about today. Uh, the mission of the board is to improve the quality of healthcare by certifying doctors who demonstrate the knowledge, skills, and attitudes essential to excellent patient care. So the whole idea is that the way we try to make healthcare better is by creating processes that recognize doctors who have demonstrated something important, important skills for the practice of medicine. We used to call ourselves a standard setting organization. Now we say we are the vehicle through which the profession sets standards for itself. The history of the board, we were created in 1936 by a joint action of the American College of Physicians, the internist organization and the AMA. Uh, and it's actually a kind of in many industries, this happens you get membership organizations that focus on education and advocacy who become apprehensive that people will uh, degrade or threaten whatever the industry is by uh, doing it badly, by not meeting a set of standards. Uh, and so they create organizations that are independent to create standards and expectations and verify that they've been met. Um, a common example that people, your listeners probably are aware of, but probably haven't thought much about, many of us are familiar with the organization NCQA. Uh, those initials stand for the National Committee of Quality Assurance. What was it the National Committee of? It was the National Committee of the Group Health Association of America, which was an HMO industry membership and lobbying group that realized, hey, we need to have standards for the industry. And so it spun out from the Group Health Association to become NCQA. 
An older example that your listeners will be familiar with is the Joint Commission on Accreditation Healthcare Organizations, which started as the Quality Committee of the American College of Surgeons uh, in, the, in the 1900s. So it's a common evolutionary path for a standard-setting organization to come out of a membership organization. That's how and why the ABIM was created. Well, thank you for that, that history. As you know, Sound Practice is the podcast of the American Association for Physician Leadership. And I'm interested in the path that brought you to physician leadership. The honest answer to that, Mike, is going to be self-defense. Um, all <laughs> I ever wanted to be was a clinical practicing doctor. Um, I was in the National Health Service Corps. It's how I funded medical school. And after training at, you know, Yale and Bellevue, I went to rural Tennessee, where I was the only physician in the western half of the county. And there I saw something I'd never seen before, uh, the physician as member of his or her community. And I loved that. I loved that the people I took care of in the office, I would be standing next to in the grocery store line, or they would be involved in caring for uh, our, our infant. And, um, and so when I came to Philadelphia, uh, I wanted to create a community practice, and I did. Um, after a few years in an academic health center, I, I opened a community practice. And I needed a part-time job um, because I went from an environment as a salaried physician where no matter what I did every month, a certain amount of money appeared in my bank account uh, to running my own practice where no matter what I did in the office at the end of the month, a certain amount of money disappeared from my bank account. <laughs> And I thought I needed a part-time job, and I stumbled into a job as the medical director, the 0.4 FTE medical director of a startup, Medicaid HMO, in 1988. Uh, and that was um, that was a, a new thing that HMOs were just getting started. Medicaid, there was no Medicaid managed care; it was all fee-for-service around the country. Of course, today it's 80% of Medicaid is managed care, but then it was new and it was some teaching hospitals that got together. And in retrospect, today you'd almost think of them more as an ACO. Uh, the mission of the organization was improving the health of a defined population within a fixed budget. And there I was, the 0.4 FDU uh, medical director, and I was the 35th employee and we had maybe 4,000 members. The plan was when the practice got busy, I'd give up the part-time job and stay full-time in practice. But the organization had a compelling mission. It had a wonderful CEO who was very supportive of me. And as the organization grew and grew and grew, and I kept saying, you should hire a real medical director. She said, you are a real medical director. Bring in whatever you need to bring in to keep doing this job. So a decade later, I was still the 0.4 FTE person, but now I was the senior vice president for medical affairs of a 100,000 member Medicaid HMO and early Medicare choices uh, HMO. Uh, and, uh, and there were 400 employees, 100 of them reporting to me. And I was dividing my time between the community practice, which by then had grown to seven doctors uh, and, and the leadership in the HMO. And people said, you know, oh, you could influence, okay, and practice 1,500, 2,000 people, but if you become a medical executive, you'll, you'll have an impact on hundreds of thousands or millions, you should do that. 
Um, and I didn't want to do that. I, I didn't go to medical school to become an executive. I wanted to stay in practice. But I have to admit, um, when I got a call uh, 20, well, 30 years in in practice from Rick Gilfillan uh, at the Innovation Center, and he called me up and he said, Don Berwick just asked me to be the director of the Innovation Center. And Rick and I had worked together in the Medicaid HMO days. He says, I got $10 billion, a bunch of get out of jail free federal regulatory cards. Are you going to stay in practice forever? Or do you want to come down here and fix American healthcare? And frankly, the hook was in. Um, so that's, that's a, a quick summary of how I wound up as a leader. But it really was about trying to take the insights of what I was experiencing in practice uh, and the challenges and what worked and what didn't and bring that perspective into a leadership space where I could have some impact on structuring the way uh, the way practice happened. Excellent. You recently wrote an article for New England Journal of Medicine, and it focused on protecting the legitimacy of medical expertise. Why'd you write the article? Oh, boy. Uh, what a terrific question. Um, I think we are at this extraordinary moment in our society, in our country, um, where expertise is under attack, uh, where people are coming to doubt the existence of facts, to contest things that we would have thought were factual. And whatever you want to say about medical practice, I think we earn our living by being experts, by studying deeply the science of medicine, the literature of medicine, really trying to gain a knowledge base and put it in service to our patients. I think that's the core of what we do. We put a sign out there says, if you have a problem that's medical, come to see me. I have expertise. I have skills. I can help you. And that help comes in the context of a broad community of clinicians, scientists who together craft a standard and expectation of what it looks like to do it right. And now I think we find ourselves in a world where people are skeptical of expertise, they're dubious of expertise, they wonder about the motives of experts. And when you amplify all that anxiety by social media and the internet and the fact that anybody can find any fact, so-called fact they want on the internet, they can find things to support whatever it is they want to believe, it becomes a very challenging environment. And I think expertise is being threatened. And I think it's really incumbent on us um, as a profession, as leaders in a profession, to defend that expertise. Your article does not address nurse practitioners. You know, NPs are taking on an ever larger portion of primary care in, in the country with decreasing physician oversight in many uh, states. Has the expansion of nurse practitioners served to erode physician expertise in the eyes of the public? I don't think it erodes the concept of physician expertise. I think patients and the public 
do understand the difference between nurse practitioners and fully trained physicians. And I think people understand different roles. Obviously, they don't understand, you know, how the sausage is made and how teams work and scope of practice and all that stuff. Uh, but they know the difference between doctors and, and nurses and nurse practitioners. I think what it speaks to is our collective failure uh, to offer the public accessible primary care that there's a lot of reasons for that and we could explore some of those if you'd like to uh, at the end of the day the reason i left my medical practice uh, was to take rick gilfillan's invitation and save american primary care my wife said why would you leave this practice that you built why would you move out from philadelphia and go to baltimore and washington and the answer was because I thought this was one of the critical problems facing the country. I almost felt like my father must have felt signing up to fight the Nazis in World War II. And sadly, uh, though I think we made real progress and programs that I was involved in designing the Comprehensive Primary Care Initiative, which uh, diverted, sorry, directed a lot more resources, financial resources to primary care, um, I think we made a difference. I think we helped broaden the scope of primary care practice around the country, um, but we did not succeed in saving American primary care. I, I think we are in big trouble there. And, um, and I think that patients are going to need somebody to answer the phone and see them when they're ill. And if you just look at the numbers, we don't have enough primary care doctors. Um, and so I think what's happening is um, various kinds of team-based care and expansions of practice are happening uh, to meet an unmet need. Well said. Um, your article, and in, in, for our listeners, we will uh, post information about how they can read the article because I think everyone should should read it. It's very well written. The, the article argues effectively that anti-expertise perspective has moved mainstream. Um, and this is thanks in part, you argue, to to Google and Amazon. Can you expand a little on that? Sure. Um, I think something that was very shocking to me to learn as a matter of history, um, at the founding of the Republic, um, only two states licensed doctors because it was believed every man his own doctor, it's a free country, and besides, people believed that disease was local, and what would, to the extent that knowledge came from Europe, what, what did Europe know about diseases in the United States? By 1830, all but two states licensed doctors, and you say, great, progress. But by 1860, Mike, only two states licensed doctors. It was a shock to me to learn that because you think progress is linear. And the question, of course, it poses is what did the states, what changed their mind between 1830 and 1860? Why did they think licensing was a good idea in 1830 and a bad idea in 1860? And the answer to that, uh, which has been explicated beautifully in a book by a guy named Louis Grossman, 
choose your medicine. He's a law professor and legal historian at American. Um, he talks about what he describes as the medical freedom and liberty movement. And what happened between 1830 and 1860 was that people opposing licensure were able to characterize licensure as an infringement on freedom and liberty. And he talks about four different freedoms. He talks about, uh, first of all, freedom of bodily integrity, because the argument among doctors there were, did you use botanicals or did you use other stuff? And it was, well, if you license the people who use the other stuff, you're going to make me put the other stuff in my body and I don't want to. The second argument, commercial freedom. Um, and that was both, gosh, if you give doctors a monopoly, they're going to get together and raise prices. Um, not only that, I should be able to hire anybody I want to be my doctor. And on the doctor side, what do you mean I can't just go be a doctor? Who? Why would you limit that? The third argument was freedom of inquiry. If you license one group of doctors, well, the, the botanical folks are not going to go out and find the cure for cancer that's growing in some forest somewhere. We know it is. You're going to keep them from finding it. And the fourth was kind of freedom of conscience that that the state shouldn't tell me who I get to pick as a doctor. It doesn't tell me who I pick as a minister. Why would it tell me who I pick as a doctor? And what's striking, Mike, is that all four of those things are actively in play right now in conversations in our country. Every one of them, bodily integrity, uh, monopoly and commercial freedom, uh, freedom of inquiry, where are we shutting down science? All of a sudden, everybody is, everybody who disagrees with prevailing medical consensus, all of a sudden those folks are, they're all Semmelweis, they're all Copernicus, they're all Galileo, they're all brilliant people who see the thing that nobody else sees. And I think most of us physicians in practice and in leadership take licensure for granted. We take for granted the idea that, of course, we're the only ones who can admit people to hospitals. Of course, we're the only ones who are going to get paid for medical services by insurance companies. I think it's important for us as a profession to realize that that unique privilege is a grant of civil authority that, um, as the story from 1830 to 1860 shows, is not guaranteed, is not guaranteed forever. Um, and as we start seeing state legislatures getting involved in regulating physician practice, we realize that uh, they can chip away at what it means to be a physician, what the authority of physicians is. And I think we all need to be thinking deeply about what gives us legitimacy, what gives us authority. Part of it is science, a major part of it is science. Uh, but a huge part of it ultimately relies on trust, uh, and that is something that I fear we are starting to lose as a profession and as a healthcare enterprise. Rich, last night I looked up the Surgeon General's podcast, House Calls is the name of it, and then I looked up a podcast that's been criticized for providing false information related to, to COVID-19. As you'll remember, Joe Rogan on his podcast in early 2022 claimed coronavirus vaccines weren't actually vaccines, but were instead uh, gene therapy, promoted uh, 
the taking of ivervectin as well. Our Surgeon General's podcast had 55 uh, reviews. Joe Rogan's podcast had over 4,800 reviews and 11 million um, listeners wow. uh, per, per episode. Is this a problem of prioritizing entertainment over information? Wow. <laughs> First of all, Mike, those are chilling statistics. And thank you for putting them in front of your listeners and educating me about them because they really do illustrate the scope of the problem. There are some things that we know about misinformation. Um, and one of the things we know is that sensational stuff spreads faster, lies spread faster than truth. And there was an article in Science Magazine about it, um, which documented, there was a study that documented um, that lies spread much faster, 17 times faster on social media, and that gets um, exponentially magnified. And I think that we have to remember that the business model of the social media platforms focuses on engagement, not accuracy, that they're rewarded for what people look at, for what people are paying attention to. So in a way, I, I don't know that I would have put it the way you just did, but I, I think that may be a good way to put it, that if what the platforms are doing is prioritizing engagement, then they are prioritizing entertainment over accuracy and truth, that it's entertaining to read an outrageous story, it's entertaining to hear an outrageous story, but that certainly doesn't make it true. And I think we don't want to live in a world where we're crowdsourcing the truth. There may be lots of things we want to crowdsource. We may want to crowdsource our political leadership as we do with elections. Um, we may want to crowdsource who we think the um, the best masked singer is, um, but I don't think we want to crowdsource the treatment of a lethal disease. I, I think we want to rely on sound methodology for generating evidence we can rely on. And it's never 100%. I mean, we both know, and your listeners certainly know, that when a study establishes a treatment, it says, if you do this, you're more likely to benefit from it than if you don't do it. That's all it's saying. And if we lose our grip on that kind of reality, uh, we're in big trouble. It is, it is frightening. Rich, numbers of freshman college students have been contracting around the country. As tuition rises, more of our fellow citizens take aim at higher education. Is the anti-expertise perspective that you talk about in medicine more a sequela than a disease? So um, I, I think yes and uh, is, is what I would say that um, Jill Lepore wrote a piece in The New Yorker um, about the Scopes trial, which I learned um, as a kid was, you know, the contest between science and religion, and, and, and that's what was at issue. And she argues that actually 
what was at issue is the same thing that's at issue now in discussions of critical race theory and education. It's parents saying, I don't want the state to tell my kid what's true. And again, it's another guise of the freedom argument. It's I should get to decide, I should. So I think the freedom argument leads to a bias against higher education um, because, well, what if people on campuses are educating people about what's true? No, people should just be able to choose what's true. And, you know, uh, Moynihan, Senator Moynihan, the late Senator Moynihan had a, a, a great phrase attributed to him. You can you can choose your opinions, but you can't choose your facts. Um, we, we do seem to be living in a world where people seem to want to be able to choose their facts. And I think it's very dangerous. And I think societies that prioritize higher education tend to be societies that flourish and thrive. And societies that deprioritize it uh, tend to struggle. And I worry when I see the deprioritization of higher education and the lack of that becoming coin of the realm, I think we have a risk to social flourishing. We have a risk to social health that's important. And I'll make one more observation bringing in higher education. I mentioned earlier that I think a critical issue here is trust. And one of the things that institutions of higher education has have done, as has medicine, prices have gone up faster than inflation. One of the reasons that population is going down uh, is the way in which um, higher education has become increasingly unaffordable. That's a reason it's going down. Um, and uh, in um, a recent book, uh, the the sum of us. Um, the author argues that um, that we used to have a much deeper public commitment to higher education and that we had land-grant universities and people could get college degrees in state-supported institutions very inexpensively. She argues that it's actually structural racism at stake that when these institutions really threw their doors open to people of color, that the level of public support for them went down because wait a minute, my public dollars are going to go to support the education of people of color. I'm not as comfortable with that as I am um, supporting education of white people. So it's really interesting. There's a lot going on in higher education more than just fewer people going there. It's become vastly more expensive uh, for very complicated reasons. Yeah, absolutely. As a physician leader, I look to you and your members at the ABIM for solutions. Please offer me some hope. What, uh, what, what's the path forward, Rich? So I think the path forward has to be focusing on building and deserving trust, behaving in a trustworthy way as an organization. Many of your listeners will know that the American Board of Internal Medicine actually went through some very difficult times over the last decade. Um, we were the subject of a sustained attack that had a lot of traction among the doctors. 
Um, it was shortly after I started, uh, and I'd like to think it wasn't because I started, that it was just the timing of when I started. But I came to believe that the challenge that we faced was we had moved from a credential that was a lifetime credential um, that we issued at the beginning of career uh, to a time-limited credential that said, Periodically, you needed to demonstrate you had stayed current in the field, which made a lot of sense, but we did a terrible job explaining it to people. And we continued to behave like a group of arrogant people. We were the teachers, you were the students, we know the answers, you didn't. We could get away with that when we were working with residents and fellows. But by the time I started um, in 2013, now, some of the people that we were saying that to were 50-year-old cardiologists, and they said, who made you the boss of me? And what I realized was we had a 20 or 30-year legacy of having made no effort to build trust with them. Um, I discovered a, a document from 1980 in our archives where a practicing doctor said to the board, I asked all my colleagues you know, what they think of the board. and. They don't know who you are, they don't know what you do, but they're pretty sure that whatever you do is different enough from what they do, that if you're going to set standards, you better do it with them and not to them, and that isn't what we did. So my leadership journey in the last decade at ABIM has been to try to become a more trustworthy organization with respect to the diplomates that we certify. And Mike, that's taken me to everywhere from financial transparency on our website to different kinds of communication, to changing the tone of communication, to changing the way we talk about what we do, and also to changing the program that we offered so that we would see it through the eyes of the doctors going through it, even as we maintain fidelity to the core value proposition of distinguishing doctors who stayed current from doctors who haven't, of doctors who met standards of expertise and knowledge from doctors who haven't. And I think we've made real progress in that. But the journey wasn't to stand up and say, we're right and you're wrong. It was to take seriously how we had allowed trust to erode and what steps we needed to take to restore it. And that was everything from changing the way we did business to changing the way we talked about ourselves um, to doing a better job explaining how what we did was relevant to the needs of the people that we were serving. And frankly, Mike, I came to believe that every healthcare organization out there is one step away from the journey ABIM was on, that we all think that we get the engagement of our patients that of course they trust us of course we have their best interests of heart and of course they come to us because we have science but as you look around and you realize the counter narrative what is what does surprise billing do to the story of we have your best interests at heart what does it mean that medical bills is the largest cause of personal bankruptcy in this country what does it mean when hospitals and health systems are turning people over for collection in very harassing ways? And I get it, I, I, the no margin, no mission, all that stuff, but we have to stop assuming that we can do that 
and it's not going to have consequences in terms of how much people trust us. And a lot of the uh, the anti-vax narrative used to be focused on on autism, and it didn't have a lot of traction when it was that. Now it focuses on freedom and commercial exploitation. Like that vaccine, they're making a lot of money on you in those drug companies, and the government is abridging your freedom by making you do this. Those narratives are much more resonant in the public, and we need to think of ways to talk to people who believe that, that aren't, no, no, the vaccine really does work. Um, that's not their concern. Their concern is that somehow it's corrupt, somehow it's an infringement on freedom. Our ability to build trust with patients will begin with recognizing what their concerns are and trying to deal with those instead of just trying to persuade them that we're right. When I started practicing, most of the primary care physicians in my hometown had independent practices. We don't see that nearly as much anymore. Physicians are in larger healthcare systems as employees. Um, do you think that, that the fact that they're working for a larger organization um, depersonalizes them and um, maybe uh, creates some of these uh, feelings uh, that you were just describing? It, it certainly creates conditions under which that can happen. I don't think it depersonalizes them. I think the opportunities that physicians have to create authentic, meaningful relationships with their patients are as robust as they ever were. And what sustained me in 30 years of community practice was those relationships. Uh, and, and I think anybody practicing today has that opportunity to derive meaning from their work. And I think it's critical that people think hard who are doing clinical work about how do I hang on to that in an environment that doesn't reliably support it. You're absolutely right. Um, most recent data, it's a year old, 72% of all doctors in the country now work for organizations not controlled by physicians. Physicians Foundation did a study um, that, that showed that. And, and I think that does create a new set of problems in my own community practice. Um, I got to hire and fire people. I got to decide what electronic health record we were going to use. I got to decide what purposes we would use that electronic health record for. When you're working in a larger organization, you don't have those degrees of freedom for sure. But what the organizations need to work on and the physicians need to help them work on, and I think the, the your listeners and, and the organizations sponsoring this podcast are critical to getting this right, physician leaders need to help organizations understand that the organizations are losing trust with the physicians who work for them. And the organizations need to think about what it takes to maintain trust. So whether it's uh, how people staffed for the pandemic or did or didn't provide personal protective equipment or did or didn't lay people off or did or didn't, a whole variety of decisions that people made under, under great duress, but those decisions had rippling consequences uh, in, in trust that staff had, trust that physicians had. And 
I think everybody in healthcare needs to be thinking hard about how to rebuild trust in the part of the organizations. They need to be thinking about rebuilding trust with their physicians and with their professional staff. And I think if physicians feel like the organizational mission has moved to all they care about is the money, um, then I think they will not do a very good job taking care of patients. They will not show up to work with patients' welfare and clinical outcome top of mind. I think that's still possible, but I think we've damaged that and everybody needs to work hard to restore it. Rich, I was interested to read that your undergraduate concentration was in English. Uh, could training in English or history help future physicians combat misinformation, relate better to uh, patients? Mike, it has certainly helped me um, that I, uh, I, I think being an English major, I, I'm so glad you found that and put it out there. It actually was one of the most important things in my career because when I went to medical school, I went with a belief that the activity of medicine was a fundamentally human activity, that it was fundamentally about the people and that the science was a tool. It wasn't the whole game. It was a way to meet the needs of people. And frankly, from the very beginning of my medical education, that wasn't how they put it. Um, it was the science was what I was supposed to learn. Uh, the science was what I was supposed to be thinking about, what I was supposed to master. Uh, and I actually wound up writing a thesis in medical school and, um, uh, and that became a paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, which began, uh, it happened the other morning on rounds, as it often does, that while I was putting my stethoscope on a patient's chest, the patient asked, uh, asked me a question. Quiet, I said, I can't hear you while I'm listening. What was I listening for? What was I being trained to listen for? I came to believe that we were being taught in medical school that patients were translucent screens on which a disease was projected. And our goal was to make the patient disappear so we could see the disease. That way of thinking, I think, is still inchoate in, in much of how we train and how we think about using science to help patients. I think the humanities help us discover something, rediscover something, affirm something that all of us have, that human connection. That's what animates, that's the, that is what animates medicine. It has to drive medicine. And I think that's where we find meaning is in the connection of the service that we get to provide as healers. And I think that can get lost when you see it as an economic enterprise. It can get lost when you see it as a scientific enterprise. It can get lost when you see it as a technical enterprise. I think the humanities help us discover ways that um, that it, it continues to be a human enterprise. And I think history helps us discover that that what we have right now is not inevitable and could be something else and will be something else and used to be something else. And I think it helps us understand our work in a larger context. So yes, I do think both of those things can help us be more effective in facing our current situation. Well, certainly the practice of medicine is is both an art and a science. And I think what you're getting at is the, the art end of the equation, which may be beneficial uh, 
throughout the practice for addressing problems that we've been we've been discussing. The American Board of Internal Medicine is busy in an engaging organization. In our final minutes together, Rich, can you tell us what are some of the topics on the agenda for ABIM in the next year and uh, and beyond? Uh, so absolutely. We, I think we've, over the last 10 years, certainly lowered the temperature among physician colleagues that there was an enormous amount of anger uh, and some of the professional societies uh, felt they needed to channel that anger too, uh, to represent their members with us. And I think we've done a lot of work to try to lower the temperature. And I think we've done a lot of work to try to offer physicians who want to be in our program, who want to hold our credential, um, a, a pathway that fits into their lives better. We now offer something called a longitudinal knowledge assessment and people, instead of having to show up at a test center all day, uh, they can do 30 questions a quarter at a time of their convenience. And this has been hugely successful and, and it's educational and we're still able to make judgments, really meaningful judgments about whether people going through this assessment have stayed current. So we haven't lost our core value proposition, but we've helped this hit the ground uh, in, a, in a more comfortable way. Um, we are, so we're definitely trying to make the experience of the doctors dealing with us better. Uh, and that's everything from how we respond to queries about the program, trying to make the rules a little more um, understandable, uh, and uh, and trying to make the, the journey of the doctors through the program one that has more education and, and is not as intrusive and difficult. So that's a big part of what we're working on. Uh, we're going to be looking at ways technology can help us do it better, uh, as every organization uh, today is doing, and um, we'll we'll learn. You know, is there a role for simulation? Is there a role? Uh, are there ways that we can pick up the digital artifacts that doctors are leaving in practicing today and use those uh, to construct valuable assessments that would be less obtrusive for doctors? Long way to go to get there, but um, maybe maybe a possible goal. I think the thing that you and I are talking about uh, is a very important thing that we're trying to do. That we think that the core of the value proposition of being board certified is distinguishing a group of doctors who are practicing today's medicine, who have mastered and stayed current with a body of knowledge from a group of doctors who just say they do. And in a world where expertise is under attack, I was surprised to find, when I described earlier the, the broad assault on, on ABIM from the profession itself, I thought, how could a group of people who earn their living by being experts attack a body that certifies them as experts? And I came to realize that we all are breathing the same air. We all are living in the same cultural environment. And part of what we're wanting to do, and part of why I wrote that article that, that you mentioned, is that I think our colleagues should not take our position for granted. We should understand uh, how contingent it is. We should realize that it's at risk. 
And we should really focus on behaving in trustworthy ways and helping our organizations behave in trustworthy ways. Because if we lose the public's trust, we are going to lose all of the privileges we have. And by privileges, I don't, I don't mean, um, you know, social privilege, I, which we are blessed with as physicians. I mean the ability to command all the resources that we command as therapeutic physicians today. The, we can sign off on drugs that require prescriptions. People who don't have licenses can't. We can uh, arrange consultations and procedures and hospital work for patients. Other people can't, but that is a grant of authority that we have and we need to earn it. We need to deserve it and we need to behave in ways that persuade patients that we have their interests at heart and not our own. Very well said. For those interested in joining the American Board of Internal Medicine, where do they go to learn more? So abim.org is our website. Uh, we're not a membership organization, and, and that's important to, to say that um, the, the business model of, of a membership organization, a professional society, the American College of Cardiology, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, that's a membership organization where you pay dues uh, to the organization and to join, you may need to be certified. You may need to already be in the discipline. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. The business model of the American Board of Internal Medicine, um, we are the vehicle through which the community sets standards for itself. Doctors pay a fee and then they go through a process. And if they successfully demonstrate in that process that that they have uh, maintained their skills, then they get a certificate, they get a credential. So um, going to abim.org, you can learn about our history, you can learn about our program. One of the things that many people have said, and I think it's part of the broad attack on expertise, people say, oh, there's no evidence this credential makes a difference. That's simply not true. I think that's one of the things that I would want your listeners to pay attention to. We do have on our website a series of infographics um, and as well as a, a bibliography that describe all sorts of outcomes we care about that are better in board certified doctors than not board certified doctors. And that's everything from a risk of state disciplinary action against a license to um, outcomes from heart attacks, uh, to outcomes from cardiac procedures, uh, to uh, management of diagnostic error. Uh, people who perform on, well on our exam are less likely to make diagnostic errors that injure patients and lead to unplanned hospitalization and death. So there are a variety of very important clinical outcomes that board certification is associated with. And one of my favorites coming to ABIM shortly after um, being at the Innovation Center in value-based contracting, uh, we published a study in JAMA that the doctors subject to the continuing certification program and enrolled in it provided equivalent quality of care, but at two and a half percent lower total cost of care than doctors not subject to continuing certification. We compared the 8889 folks to the 9192 folks um, using Medicare claims. Medicare claims isn't where I'd go to find out about quality, but it is where I'd go to find out about cost. Um, and those cost differences came not from structural measures like emergency room utilization or hospital readmission. They came from decreased consultation and decreased test ordering. Doctors who know what they're doing do less 
because they don't do shotgun stuff of, oh, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this. So um, I, I think all of this can be found at abim.org. And on the trust building stuff, our foundation is focusing on uh, initiatives for helping healthcare organizations build trust. And that can be found at buildingtrust.org. Um, and there we have a, a website that is a compendium of practices that are working in this space. Tremendous. Dr. Richard Barron, unfortunately, our time's up. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Continue the good fight, sir. Mike, thank you. This is really one of the more thoughtful and reflective conversations that I've had with anybody in podcasting. So kudos to you uh, for, for staying on the salient issues. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the kind words. My thanks to Dr. Richard Barron. He and his colleagues at the American Board of Internal Medicine are doing important and good work for the medical profession. His time and expertise are greatly appreciated. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. Bada bing, bada You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org.